0: Good morning. So Revelation chapter six: What can I say? Where do I start? Other than, "Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Phil, for um, giving me the chapter which first addresses the topic of evil and revelation. Next, <laughs> next time I agree to preach, I'll read the passage more carefully first. So after five chapters of setting the scene. Wonderful visions of Jesus glorified in heaven worship around the throne of God. This passage comes as something of a shock. It doesn't make for easy reading, whichever way you look at it. The seals on the scroll are opened by the Lamb, the only one worthy to do so. And they unleash conquest, war, greed, selfishness, famine, sickness, and death. Horrors and sights none of us want to witness are revealed. We all struggle at times with the reality of pain and suffering in our world. But to see the four horsemen of the apocalypse rushing into the world, intent to do their worst, revealing the full horrors of human evil for what they are, apparently at God's command, seems almost too much. So, what do we do with this passage and those to come? Because this is just the start of it. Other than a few brief interludes, chapter seven of which is one, things don't really get much better until chapter 21. <laughs> but I'm not preaching on those ones, so that's, that's okay. Um, if you just want to hear the good bits, then I suggest you leave now and maybe come back in April when we get to the end of the series. But I hope you won't, because although these chapters are hard, difficult to read, to understand, and we can't fully understand them, they're in the Bible for a reason. And we trust that God, our awesome God, will somehow help us to understand them, help us to grow as disciples through reading and studying them, and to grasp a little more of the significance of God's ultimate victory over all that is evil. Because without giving too much away, the ultimate message of the whole book of Revelation is that God wins. There's no no easy answers to these questions, the questions raised by these chapters. We only need to look at the news headlines or our own experiences of pain and suffering to realize the earthly reality times is not easy. Our world is in a mess. And I've really struggled to write this sermon. I was sat in the service a couple of weeks ago, having spent already several days looking at these passages. And I just felt overwhelmed by what on earth could I say that was going to be helpful, give some insight. Fortunately, over the next few days, God did give me some way into the passage and that's where I'm going to take you today. I think the reason I struggle so much is because the question that can't be avoided when we look at this, as to why our good, all-loving, all-powerful God allows so much suffering to take place in our world, is one that I've wrestled with again and again over the years. I know all the set answers that we as Christians can give to non-Christians who ask that, but it doesn't really take away from the mess our world is in. From those times when we suffer, when we look at the world and the suffering going on it, it doesn't stop me asking God repeatedly the question, why? And then there's a small matter of God's judgment and the wrath of the Lamb, which also crop up in this chapter. But we have to remember when we look at this, that God gave John this vision to encourage persecuted believers, not to make them feel worse, to encourage them. And there's a reason also why he doesn't turn to the question of evil till chapter six, while we have the backdrop of chapters one to five before we look at it. It's the heaven reality. The heavenly reality we've looked at over the last few weeks that we have to hold on to when we turn to chapter six. So in case you've missed the good bits over the last few weeks, John's vision so far, Jesus glorified in heaven those wonderful pictures, descriptions in chapter one. Jesus' love for the church, the letters he wrote. He wrote out of love. Scenes of worship before the heavenly throne. And the lamb who was slain. This is the ultimate reality, the ultimate heavenly reality, which must be the context for what we see in chapter six. We have to find a way of holding these par- parallel realities together, even when the heavenly reality seems far away, far less real to us than the earthly one. And that, I think, is what John is attempting to do here in Revelation. It reminded me of when I go walking in the mist and fog, which my preference is to go out in the sunshine. But over the years, there have been far more days than I care to remember when I get to the top of the hill and I have a view something like this, mist, mist, and more mist. The trig point here could be anywhere. I knew that if the mist wasn't there, I would have had stunning views of Lakeland fells. I had to trust that because I'd been up there before. Um, on that day, I got the occasional glimpse when I started to come down. And I think it's a bit like that with the heaven reality. We get occasional glimpses God gives us to keep us going, those times when we're surrounded and missed. Other times, we simply don't get those glimpses and we have to rely on what other people say, on our experience on other occasions, pictures others have taken, of the view that we would see, of the reality that is there, but we can't see for the fog that's got in the way. And I think it's a bit like that with the heaven reality that John describes in Revelation. Personally, a lot of the time, I feel there's an awful lot of fog between me and this wonderful heavenly reality. But despite that, I choose to hold on to it, to continue with the walking analogy to set my compass on God, to use the map he provides in the form of his word, and to follow it, (coughs) to um, make me reassured by the odd cairn that he puts along the way to help me know I'm on the right path, and to trust that those times I do wander off course, his compass would gently steer me back in the right direction. And at the same time of this, to keep asking God to reveal something more to me off this heavenly reality. This reality I get glimpses of on occasions when I'm closest to God but that a lot of the time doesn't feel like it's there. And at the same time as this we need to accept especially when we look at the book of Revelation that our God is a God of mystery. There's much that will always remain mystery. If we could put our incomparable sovereign God in the neat little boxes that we might like to, I certainly would like to, and have tried to do so, but not surprisingly failed. If we could put our awesome God in our own little boxes, he would not be a God worth worshiping. So with all that as a backdrop, let's turn to chapter six and the opening of the scroll. The scroll opens to reveal the seven seals, and they're the first of three sets of sevenfold sequences. They'll be followed by the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of God's wrath. And although they're pictured consecutively in the book, they're not actually consecutive in their order in which they occur. They're all different depictions of the same reality, just different ways of looking at it. And these first six seals open to reveal horrors and sights, none of us wants to witness. Yet, as will become clear as we progress through the rest of Revelation, unless these ills of the world are brought to light, put on display and allowed to do their worst, they cannot be overthrown. The evils of the world have to be exposed for what they really are before they can be dealt with once and for all by God. Revelation 6, right through to 20, is not what we want to hear, but what we must hear if our world is eventually to be healed. The first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, are one of the most enduring images of Revelation, however you picture them. and their authority comes from God. And they symbolize the evils which have characterized our world right since the fall. They represent the reality of both then and now, and all the many centuries in between. The world, as we observe it, is shot through with evil. The events described here are reminiscent of things Jesus spoke about in Mark 13, Matthew 24. So to take each one in turn, the reality of our world then and now. First, the white horse. It is sometimes thought of as representing the Messiah, but personally I think in this context, it's more likely to represent conquest. A force which John's original heroes would have been all too familiar with in the form of imperial Rome. Second, the fiery red horse symbolizes war and the absence of peace, something well-known throughout history and, sadly, in our world today. You only need to look at Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Sudan, to mention but a few places which have been destroyed by war. Third, the black horse signifies economic problems and scarcity, which so often, in turn, lead to conflict between nations, and a reality for millions in our world today. Fourth, the black horse, carrying death on its back, with Hades close behind, the meaning of which is obvious. As such, these verses are not describing new horrors yet to come, but rather the reality of life on Earth today. Suffering in this life is to be expected, and it's the reality that God is well aware of. So, if these realities are not unknown to God, if he's fully aware of the widespread suffering, misery and death which these evils bring, this leaves us with the uncomfortable questions I raised at the start. Where is God in all this? Why doesn't our good, all-loving, all-powerful, sovereign God simply step in and end such unspeakable suffering. Or to put it more forcefully, as Stephen Fry does, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault. It's not right, it's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Our Western worldview says it's not fair. If we were God, we'd step in and sort it all out. But the bigger picture, as revealed here in Revelation, is that all these things must happen as a result of the sin and fallenness of creation. The four basic human ills represented by the four horsemen are ones which we humans inflict on one another. God is not the author of pain, suffering, injustice and poverty. We are. The majority of the world's suffering is because of our rebellion, our pride, our greed, our selfishness and foolishness, a mess that we can't ever make right ourselves. And we need God to intervene radically to sort it out. The ultimate reality that we have to hold on to is that God is sovereign, reigning on his throne in heaven, in control in his heavenly HQ, and the end will be a just one, despite the earthly suffering that happens along the way, in the gap in which we live between the fall and the coming redemption of all things. In our Western culture, we tend to think we have some kind of divine right to happiness. But I want to pause for a moment here to ask an admittedly challenging question. How would it change our perspective to start seeing earthly suffering as the norm rather than the exception? To accept that life in a messed up, broken world is tough, rather than blaming God when things go wrong. In his book, God and the Dock, C.S. Lewis uses the following analogy. He asks you to imagine two sets of people living in an old, dilapidated building. One set thinks it's a hotel, the other that it's a prison. Those who think it's a hotel might regard it as intolerable. Those who think it's a prison might actually regard it as surprisingly comfortable. Lewis cleverly uses this contrast between the hotel and the prison to illustrate how we view life based on our expectations. I found this cartoon of two prisoners in a prison cell, both painting the view they see. One is painting the prison bars, no view behind. The other has missed out the prison bars. And is just painting the countryside. How do we view the world? Jesus was realistic when he explained what to expect in life. He told his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Ironically, it's perhaps only when we finally accept the fact that life is not a five-star hotel and lay down our indignation at the way we're being treated that we begin to find hope. And the answer to where God is in all this surely has got to be there, right there with us, even though it might not feel like it at times. In his book God on Mute, Pete Gregg includes a story by Eli Weissel about life in Auschwitz. Among the three prisoners to be hanged on the gallows that day was a young boy. Where is God? Where is he? Someone in the crowd asked as they watched in horror as the young boy took more than half an hour to die, hanging there, struggling between life and death. And I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on the gallows. Does God care? Yes, he cares passionately for each one of us, his children. He loves us more than we can possibly imagine. He loves us so much, he sent us his beloved son, Jesus, to die for us. Jesus experienced the anguish of being separated, cut off from God, as he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we don't have to so that our sin and brokenness might no longer separate us from God. Jesus' death means that God has already won the ultimate victory and given us access to that wonderful throne room of God, described so powerfully in chapter 4. And when we look at the cross, we see the lengths God went to to rescue us, the depth of his love for us, and the power of his death. As Susan Howich puts it, it makes all the difference to know There's someone else screaming alongside you. And that's the point of the incarnation. I can see that so clearly now. God came into the world and screamed alongside us. No, our God is not indifferent to earthly suffering. With the opening of the fifth seal, the focus changes from earth back to heaven again. It reveals the persecuted church and those who've died for their faith and their call for divine justice from the first century right through to the persecuted church today. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? These martyrs are conscious of the fact that the world is still unjudged and unhealed wickedness still goes unchecked we all have an instinctive desire for justice one of the earliest phrases that most children learn is it's not fair especially when they feel hard done or wronged by it's only that if they think they're getting someone else is getting a worse deal than them they don't complain they only worry when they think someone's getting a better better deal it's not fair and God is now bringing that much long for justice. Through the posts of judgment, these martyrs will eventually be vindicated. God is putting things right. And the amazing thing is God tells of his judgment so long in advance. 2,000 years ago, he told us these days would come and he gives us all the opportunity to repent, to change our minds and turn to him. The warning of judgment shows God's mercy love and grace. As it says in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Moreover, these judgments are entirely under his control. Unlike the wicked acts of humans, God's actions will not spiral out of control. His purposes are planned, and will demonstrate His glory and power, even mercy. As the sixth seal is opened, we see devastating cosmic upheaval. Whether literal or pictorial, it describes a time of universal terror, from which there is nowhere to hide. And leaves us with the question, who can stand? All humanity is afraid. All groups understand it's now God himself who intervenes. But instead of wanting to meet him, they want to flee from him. Their attempt to hide from God reminds us of Genesis chapter 3. The first thought of a sinner is to hide. When I was thinking about this, it reminded me of the dog we had when I was growing up. He wasn't a little dog, he was quite a big Labrador. And if he'd done something wrong, like eating the cat food, he would rush noisily, to try and push himself behind a table we had in our back porch, normally knocking a bench flying and half the things on top of the table in the process. He'd then get to the corner and turn his head away, thinking that we couldn't possibly see him. Now, we all have this urge to hide. It's something we can all relate to. And when we mess up, we're tempted to hide from others, from ourselves. But our attempt to hide from God is as ridiculous as our dogs attempt to hide from us. We can't. Our holy, holy God can see us with the eyes like blazing fire we heard about earlier. He can see right into our hearts, trying to hide from him. It's just not worth it. And the creator God is calling the world to account. But people are wrong to imagine him as a capricious or vengeful tyrant. The world is in a terrible state and something has to be done about it. God has to intervene. As Tom Wright says, God is indeed angry at everything that has so horribly spoiled his wonderful world. His gaze from the throne is a deep, inexpressible mixture of sorrow and anger. But the lamb's anger is the utter rejection by love incarnate of all that is loving, the utter rejection by love incarnate of all that is unloving. The only people who should be afraid of it are those who are determined to resist the call of love. So in chapter six, we've been provided with images that account for every aspect of evil, social strife, scarcity and famine, sickness unto death, religious persecution and natural catastrophe. Nothing that we experience as evil is unnoticed or unacknowledged. And the created order needs to be purified. But before that can happen, God's people need to be reassured that they will come through safely. So we turn to chapter 7, which provides a welcome, wonderful, if brief interlude in the darkness of this section of Revelation. Who can stand in the face of this evil and destruction? The angels can, but so can a great multitude which no one could number. We as Christians too can stand. In Revelation 6, the seals are opened by Christ and the unsealings show the frightful contents of history. But in Revelation 7, these unsealings are more than matched by the sealings that protect people of faith, from the eternal consequences of historical evil. Ancient documents were tied with string and then stamped with a seal, a lump of clay marking the contents, showing who they belonged to. And in this passage, God's seal symbolizes both his ownership and protection of his people. His name is written on their foreheads. It reminds us of the passage in Ephesians chapter 1, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. It also has echoes of Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover. God's people were protected by smearing the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts. The impact of Revelation 7 is felt in the present experience of believers, not just in the future. In the midst of experienced historical evil, we are protected. We're protected from the God-separating effects of this evil as we experience the suffering caused by it. And this is what we need to hold on to as we face the reality of life on earth now. Nothing can separate us from God. And this ceiling is inclusive. The number 144,000 is symbolic, symbolizing a vast completeness, 12 times 12 times 1,000. All God's people from every nation, every tribe and every tongue. It's a reminder of God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And These people are clothed in white not because they've necessarily lived perfect, spotless lives, but because the blood of the Lamb has rescued them from slavery to sin, making them able to stand in the presence of God before his heavenly throne. And these people are not only secure, they're exuberant, worshipping God. John sets the most frightening scenes of evil in chapter 6 alongside these scenes of extravagant praise and worship in chapter 7. The people in this great crowd have not escaped suffering, but they've come through it to the other side, as Jesus came from the cross to the resurrection. These verses offer a vision of the heavenly reality, which is absolute, utter truth, against which the nightmare of persecuting and suffering must be measured. The reality is, that God and the Lamb have already won the victory, which will rescue God's people from harm. Although we may well have to come through great suffering, we will find ourselves in the true reality, in God's throne room, worshiping and serving him day and night with great abundant and exuberant joy, singing, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it's worth noting here too, That John sees this vision of great multitude praising God at a time when there are probably no more than 10,000 Christians. And chapter 7 has a beautiful ending. All those who suffered for their faith, all who stood their ground, all who've been persecuted, those who've been martyred, are met by God in the most personal way. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. for The lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's an intimacy about that promise, which says much about the vision of God throughout the whole book. Yes, God is angry with those who've ruined his creation and each other. But the reason he's angry, is because at his very heart, he's full of mercy. So full of mercy that he's led to come down from his throne and in person wipe away every tear from every eye. <coughs> and there's a taste of this future vision now. As we walk with Christ today, we already experience some of the blessings of the final city. As he walks with us in our griefs and comforts us, leads us to streams of living water, Whatever disasters and tribulations may occur, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are under God's protection. In The suffering and mess in our world, which we don't understand, John points us to this spiritual reality, the spiritual realm, and the wonder of what is to come. So we've seen the four horsemen of the apocalypse and their catastrophic effect on the earth, the cry of the martyrs, Earth-shattering cosmic events, and the reality of life in heaven. And now the seventh seal is opened. And there is silence. Silence in heaven. There's a profound sense of grief and awe, pain and anticipation. What will happen next? This unexpected hush in heaven, ought to tell us that something huge something powerful something utterly decisive is now going to happen and there's silence in heaven for half an hour it's an incredibly awesome thing through all eternity there's been worship praises and hymns sung around the throne of God angels moving back and forth singing holy, holy, holy and now at this climactic moment, as Jesus opens the seventh seal, there's silence. <coughs> and this silence allows God to hear the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints are to God like a beautiful incense, a perfume that's burned. According to the Guinness Book of Records, the most expensive perfume ever produced was sold for a massive £185,000 a bottle. It was called Imperial Majesty. And the amazing thing is, that to God, our prayers are more precious than a whole ocean of Imperial Majesty. God loves it when we pray. It's the most fragrant, beautiful and exquisite thing in existence. And he hears our prayers and cherishes every single one of them from simple one-word cries and confused ramblings to the eloquent, coherent, clear ones. All our prayers are valued, every single one of them. In his book, Red Moon Rising, which charts the birth of the 24-7 prayer movement, Pete Gregg wrote the following in response to the recognition that God was now answering a prayer he'd made nine years earlier. And then came the revelation that simply knocked the breath out of me. I never forget a single prayer my children ever utter, even if they do. The very idea that the living Lord might diligently have treasured up every little prayer I had ever prayed and all the ones I'd forgotten and that he might still be weaving their fulfillment was almost too much to take in. So... I don't know about you, but certainly for me, the journey through these chapters feels like something of an emotional roller coaster. From the wonderful scenes around the throne room of God in chapters four and five, to the very real scenes of earthly suffering and destruction in chapter six, and back again to the equally real scenes of God's heavenly throne room, the multitudes praising God, worshipping him in jubilation, and God coming down to wipe every tear from every eye. And then this silence in heaven, silence in heaven while our prayers are rising up to God more precious than the most exquisite fragrance. And I'd like to suggest that in this section of Revelation, evil is not minimised, but surrounded, put in its place between Christ and prayer. The point of this passage must surely be to affirm that even though evil must be allowed to come into our world, come to its full height and do its worst. God will not allow this process to put in jeopardy, the ultimate rescue of his people. We may rest assured that God has us, his people, in his care. This is the truth, the ultimate reality that we must hold on to in the face of earthly trials. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. since What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Which reality do you see? What do you fix your eyes on?